Okay, so welcome everyone. Welcome to Journal Club, um, our March Journal Club um, from Journal Chest. And today we have a really interesting article from this month's uh, uh, journal about beryllium disease um, due to environmental exposure rather than occupational exposure. So I'm gonna get started by introducing everyone. My name is Divya Patel. I'm from the University of Florida. Um, I specialize in interstitial lung disease and sarcoidosis. I have here with me Viren Kaul, who's an assistant professor of medicine at SUNY Upstate. Um, we are lucky to have two of the authors of the article. First, we have Dr. Bernat Zissel from the University of Freiburg and Department of Pneumology, and also Dr. Bjorn Frier, who's also from the University of Freiburg Department of Pneumology. Um, we're really thankful for them uh, being here with us, especially because of the time difference. And then finally, we have uh, um, our content liaison, Dr. Raya Dwake, who's the chairman of the Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute and uh, runs the Beryllium uh, Disease Clinic there as well. So thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Um, we're excited to discuss this interesting article um, and let's get started. So first, just to go over the learning objectives quickly, um, we're gonna review some of the immunopathogenesis of chronic beryllium disease and try to understand how beryllium lymphocyte proliferation tests are performed. We're gonna also talk about specific exposures that are known to lead to chronic beryllium disease and um, try to understand um, the unique aspects of the cluster of beryllium sensitized workers in this paper. Um, quickly, uh, the only disclosures we have um, from the speakers today are from Dr. Bjorn Frie, um, and he's listed his uh, uh, relevant uh, disclosures there. So let's get started. Um, I'm gonna start out with um, Dr. Frie actually and ask him about how does beryllium affect the lungs and what do we know about the pathogenesis of that? Okay, so um, first of all, um, uh, beryllium must uh, come to the lungs. So the normal route is the inhalation route. So we need beryllium containing dusts, beryllium containing aerosols that are, ins uh, that are inspired by, by individuals. And um, the second aspect one must know is that beryllium um, it's, it's very small and by itself, it uh, cannot be immunogenic. And what happens in the lungs most likely is that um, beryllium changes the um, antigen presentation um, by conformational changes of the um, HLA complex. And um, this, this leads to a T cell response because the T cells are confronted with novel conformations um, that um, haven't been known before to them. And so they proliferate and they cause a, um, alveolitis. And so ongoing um, exposure to beryllium um, leads to an ongoing alveolitis and at the end to the, let's say, frustrated reaction of the immune system that is granuloma formation. And this granuloma um, may lead then to fibrosis, to um, distortion of the airways. So um, making the full picture, 
of um, uh, what we know as chronic beryllium disease. So, and um, for the moment, I think it's not completely clear um, what exactly happens, but we know that um, certain um, genetic alterations, especially in the HLA gene, uh, predispose to, to beryllium disease. And there has been a recent paper um, I think that um, shows that maybe beryllium might be toxic to the alveolar macrophages causing first inflammatory response and that um, chemokine peptides may form novel antigens that um, can elect a T-cell response. So that is at least what, what I understand is chronic beryllium disease. Great, thank you so much. Um, Dr. Zissel, if you could talk about what is a beryllium lymphocyte proliferation test in general and um, like why and when it would be used. In general, the proliferation test means that you activate a T cell by an antigen, which starts to proliferate. That's actually what the T cell does if it is activated, if it is uh, stimulated by an antigen. And in this test, we stimulate the uh, T cells or, or let's say the, the, the peripheral blood cells, the white cells um, with beryllium, Cap keep them in, in, uh, in, in culture conditions for four days or seven days. And afterwards we measure proliferation by incorporation of BRDU. So this can be detected by an antibody and the, the, the amount of BRDU incorporated into the cells mean that these cells proliferate, proliferate um, very strongly. If they do not incorporate BRDU, that means they did not respond, did not uh, proliferate, and then this would be a negative test. So in general, proliferation test means you stimulate a cell that proliferates and you measure the proliferation. That was great. Um, Dr. Dwight, can you uh, review with us, like what is the difference between beryllium sensitization and beryllium disease? Like what are, what distinguishes those things? Yeah, yeah, thank you uh, for asking that. So I like to think of it as these stages, uh, there's exposure and there's sensitization and there's disease. So. Uh, those who are exposed to uh, beryllium, uh, some of them get sensitized and some of them do not. Since sensitization basically is the immune response. And that's detected by, as mentioned earlier, by the beryllium lymphocyte proliferation test. Not everybody who's sensitized progresses to beryllium disease, but it's always a stage. Sensitization is a stage that precedes chronic beryllium disease. So uh, really, chronic beryllium disease is defined by having end organ damage, so involvement of usually the lung, but it can involve other systems, and typically uh, having uh, non-necrotizing granulomas, but it can be other forms of interstitial lung disease. And though that's really the, the progression uh, in my mind, exposure, then immune response, which is sensitization detected by the lymphocyte perforation test, and then the disease, which is detected by pathology, usually either by radiographic changes, but more importantly, 
by getting pathology from the lungs or the affected organ to show non-decrising granulomas or compatible pathology with the disease. So maybe one point to, to, to point out at this point, which is, might be difference in Europe from, from US that um, as you ask, when we do the beryllium uh, lymphocyte proliferation test, um, in our clinic, we normally get samples from patients that have been already diagnosed with sarcoidosis. And the physician um, is aware of this um, occupational related disease. The patient has an occupational history making beryllium exposure likely. And so in this cohort of patients, we are asked to perform the beryllium uh, lymphocyte proliferation test. This um, might differ from the surveillance programs established in um, beryllium handling industries in US. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think I want to uh, add to that, that most of the patients that I see in my practice now are the second group, which is being under uh, surveillance from the workplace. So they come often asymptomatic and uh, no diagnosis, just a positive LPT test. And then we have to determine then how to evaluate them clinically to determine whether they have chronic beryllium disease or not. Clearly, this paper was almost the opposite, where people had a patient who had a granuloma, and then you investigated whether they have beryllium disease or not. That's a great point. Thank you. Perfect. So Dr. Dwake set me up really nice. So what happened in this study, and I'll take credit for the work here, right, guys? So is you have a patient who, you know, looks like they have granulomatous lung disease, um, diagnosed with sarcoidosis, um, and I think we've all been in this familiar situation. You rule out the common stuff, so you're left with this granuloma. And, but for some reason, uh, you, you decided to think about beryliosis, right? Or beryllium sensitization, I should say. So what, what was it that increased your index of suspicion? Because I think this is what's going to give the rest of us sleepless nights, right? How many beryllium-related diseases have I missed? Well, um, indeed, it might uh, seem a little bit strange, but um, in this case, we um, really um, listened to what the patient told us. So, um, well, normally we um, have a questionnaire for our department, how we assess how likely beryllium exposure due to occupational disease, occupational exposure might be. And um, this patient, um, he had no occupational history of direct handling with, with, with beryllium dust. But what he, um, what he mentioned is that his symptoms started, um, at least he associated us with um, increased dust exposure um, at his um, working place. And he always said, well, um, when I um, wanted to go home, I had first had to clean um, my car uh, to, 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 to have the, the, the glasses free to go back to, to home because there came so much dust from other companies uh, to our place. And so, he was indeed um, well-educated. He looked what is there with dust, with sarcoidosis, and somehow he found out that there is this disease called beryllosis or chronic beryllium disease. And so indeed, 
it was him who, 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 who gave us the hints to, to make this test. Indeed, um, in the normal routine, just giving him a questionnaire about his work wouldn't have uh, revealed um, that he's a high risk of uh, having a beryllium sensitization. That's interesting. So, you know how we typically um, don't consider case reports to be the pinnacle of science. I guess, you know, you guys did exactly that. You listened to your patient, essentially generated a case report in terms of um, interesting exposure, then kind of pursued that. So we'll move on to, and I'm going to hand off to Divya shortly. We'll move on to the next slide, which shows the table. Uh, so you identified your index patient and then decided to explore people around this index patient, trying to understand if they were actually sensitized to beryllium because now your patient is sensitized to beryllium, actually technically has the disease. So how did this, how did you guys go about finding out this cluster and walk us through the, because this was a very detailed process, very meticulous. So you found a cluster of patients. You then started figuring out where this is coming from. So walk us through all of that. Well, um, to, to, to tell the truth, um, also this has been um, a very nice opportunity at the end. The patient, he was very alerted um, for this disease and we could not um, uh, say, well, you have an occupational disease because the assessment at the um, occupational uh, the Department for Occupational Medicine at Munich, they didn't find any um, hints for occupational exposure. So in his work, he was not working with, with, with any, any, any metals where beryllium dust could be released. So this was really, really strange, but he had this sacridosis, he had this association with the dust at his working place, not deriving directly from his work. And so he um, somehow managed it that um, his colleagues became tested as well. And one must say that the employer, he allowed the, on a voluntary basis, so there has been no health regulatory saying, everybody must go for a test, but the employer offered this to his employers, employees, and um, they came, so at least to third about, came to our department to make um, the beryllium uh, proliferation test. And um, well, there have been five patients positive, and um, these patients, we looked a little bit closer. So I will not call them patients because indeed they weren't diseased. So they were at least volunteers. They had this positive um, LPT. And so um, we looked then for lung function. We did some uh, X-ray. We looked for symptoms. We had this one female who reported cough, but we did not find any further hint even in bronchoscopy for, for of lymphocyte alveolitis. So at the end, we said, okay, we have here patients that are beryllium sensitized. We informed them about what this means, that it may, may lead to chronic beryllium disease at some point, that they must be aware of this. 
But um, however, all those patients, they, they, they didn't come back to us. So we hope that even after these years, they are still quite healthy and do not have any related diseases. So um, yeah, that was, was the way it worked out. Perfect. So Dr. Jisal, um, this here is on the top panel showing your beautiful investigative work. Um, we have in that blue star, uh, that's the company where you, your workplace, the yellow star is where finally it, you guys, after your investigation, figured out the beryllium exposure is potentially coming from, which is not these people's actual workplace. It's another right. concrete factory, which is near there. Right. But you also, in this process, created a map, which helped you understand how these people got a non-occupational exposure. So how, how did you guys figure that out? And what were the unique properties about where these guys who were um, beryllium sensitized lived? Yeah, as Bjorn told us before, so you, you need to have beryllium in an inhalable form. So to us, it was yeah, very likely that there must be dust, something like that, which is containing beryllium. Uh, so we, we gathered um, dust samples from this area but also from other non-related areas, just to have an overview. The point is that in Germany, beryllium is very badly monitored. So we, there are some sporadic uh, values contain, uh, uh, concerning the, the beryllium content, uh, um, concentrations in dust, soils, whatever, but there is no regular surveillance of beryllium. So we, we collected these samples um, and we also, yeah, we were really naive. We have no knowledge about beryllium concentrations in dust, in soil, whatever. So we read something and then that came out, okay, there might be some sources in the surrounding because there is a combustion company. There is this uh, concrete company. So we try to collect and to narrow where it might come from. So it is, if it is not the company, uh, 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 occupational disease, so it might be an environmental disease. So that's what we try to figure out. Um, yeah, the, the, the main wind direction is shown here, this, right, this uh, triangle. Um, we thought, okay, there, there must be a source of beryllium if it is not the company itself, it must be in the surrounding and um, try to get a clue where it might come from. And so um, you got, you showed that the patients who were beryllium sensitized um, lived closer, uh, their home was closer to their workplace and then also to the concrete factory where yeah. you think that yeah. the beryllium originated. Right. Okay. So, um, Ed, Let me just clarify a point, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. If, um, sure. That you mentioned the inhalation part, which clearly for lung disease, inhalation is an important uh, route, the most important route. But you can get beryllium sensitized through skin and mucous membranes as well. And we've seen that right. in industries. Uh, usually you don't get lung disease, but that, uh, you know, this is something the companies in the U.S. have done over time is to minimize skin exposure, to minimize sensitization, but still, of course, inhalation is key for developing lung chronic beryllium disease. I just want to clarify that. I would ask you, is it enough to get, uh, uh, if you have skin contact with beryllium, is it enough to get 
lung disease or is it enough to have sensitization? Sensitization usually. Sensitization, right. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So um, I think we kind of uh, addressed the first part of, of question three. You know, if it wasn't from uh, occupational related, what else could it be? Besides the in, in the concrete factory and, and the other, was there anything else that you you were suspicious of besides the concrete factory as a source of beryllium when you were doing your investigations of the area and the environment? Yeah. yeah. So the, um, the, the, the workers there, they work in, in con um, yeah, just road maintain maintenance. Mm -hmm. They work in every related stuff. So maybe asphalt would be uh, uh, a source of beryllium too, because there some additives, fly ash, fly ash may contain beryllium from combustion, for example. But what we found was very inconclusive. There might be some beryllium in, but it's not uh, in that masses. And second, again, you need to have inhalable uh, um, particles which is not given in, in asphalt, but you ha have it in, in the dust from the concrete. Okay. So they, they don't produce fresh concrete. What these companies do is they um, recycle old um, de destruction concrete. I see. And during this process, you have a lot of dust. If you don't care, um, then it is spread out and which is really inhalable. Yeah. Can I um, comment on this, Divya, as well? Uh, sure, go ahead. Point. So uh, clearly, uh, occupational exposure here with beryllium is tricky uh, because uh, how to identify it. Of course, a, a detailed occupational exposure history is important and, uh, you know, et cetera. But uh, to say, uh, until the early 90s, most of the exposure happens in either the primary industries that uh, produce beryllium or in nuclear and aerospace industries. Right. But right. really since then, now there are hundreds, if not more, of industries that utilize beryllium in alloys, yeah. uh, like all the way from, uh, you know, of course, uh, in, your, in the cars, in computers, in planes, uh, even in things as golf clubs and uh, um, mountain bicycles. So I want to just uh, emphasize the importance. It's not just your usual beryllium expo you know, uh, uh, occupational history. Sometimes it may be a subtle exposure, uh, but uh, to emphasize also, you have to really be inhaling the dust. So it's not right. just having golf clubs that have beryllium in them that expose <laughs> yeah. you. Sanding down or disturbing <laughs> something that generates them. dust. Yeah. But, uh, but the companies that make those, I think their employees are at a risk of exposure to beryllium. And I just want to emphasize that because Historically, it means certain traditional industries, but now it's a lot of industries use beryllium in different uh, settings. Thank you. So in the U.S., Dr. Dwake, um, you know, I know the U.S. government is very much interested in like the, the beryllium in the nuclear industry and aerospace. But like is, the, is NIOSH or OSHA watching these other um, newer industries also or, or keeping track of exposures in those newer industries? I'm not aware of any tracking, active tracking going on, but definitely when beryllium is shipped to these companies by the primary producers, it's labeled, you know, with its hazards, et cetera. Now what, but it's up to each company how they handle it and how they inform their employees, et cetera. And that's, I think, an area that 
would require probably a lot more attention from us, uh, you know, especially that, you know, when companies who are used to dealing with beryllium, they are, they are aware of this, they do surveillance, as we said, we do screening, but companies who uh, are not primarily dealing with it, that's where the risk of, I think, uh, and we underestimate the number of people exposed occupationally to beryllium that regard. Another big one, actually, which I don't think is a big deal in the US anymore, is dental implants. Mm-hmm. Historically, some of the dental fillings and implants were uh, contained beryllium. I don't know how often is that happening in Europe, but I think it's not as common in the US anymore. But it's not, you know, having the implant may expose you because there's beryllium in it, but also the dental technicians. There's outbreaks periodically in dental technicians who sand these uh, fittings and implants that may get exposed. So I think we need to be hyper-vigilant and thinking outside the box when thinking occupational exposure and beryllium. It's not just as straightforward as may seem. It's not like other occupational exposure with dust or silica that's obvious. Beryllium is in so many things now in the form of alloys that we need to be uh, more aware of these things. Yeah. Just, just to, I would like to add, uh, so in, in dental technicians, it was the first um, accepted occupational disease, uh, beryllosis. So um, indeed, we had the problem with um, beryllium containing um, implants and all these brackets and whatever. But since the 90s, I was told that since 90s, it is out. So there is no beryllium anymore. I'm not sure because it's not clear where the, all the material comes from. But that is what, what I already hear from the dentist. Okay. Um, one uh, couple other things we wanted to uh, ask the authors, you know, is there, is there any possibility there was a different occupational that was missed in this? Um, and to add to that, like, what would be the limitations? Do you think that with these five, six patients, five that are sensitized, one with beryllium disease, is that enough to say that this concrete dust, um, you know, contains beryllium and that, you know, the workers that are exposed to this concrete dust should have protection, special protections and, and things like that? Wow. Um, let's start with the first question. Um, well, for the for the index patient, um, we are mm, quite sure that we did not miss any previous occupational exposure to beryllium uh, because he, he was assessed at um, a specialized department uh, with a, a colleague. We have a close cooperation, uh, Caroline Quattrucci is co-author. And um, well, she uh, and and her boss and her uh, boss, they looked very closely to this patient to really rule out that there has been any other occupation suspicious of um, a beryllium exposure. So for the other people um, that have been sensitized, we ask them for their work and we ask them for their previous work. However. Um, we were mainly, well, let's say, interested in seeing have do they have a disease um, rather than do they have a previous work where it could be possible. However, um, one must um, admit knowing the, the, the German occupational structure, um, this is, these persons, they normally do not change their workplace very often. They live in this village, they work there, they have a um, 
public uh, employer. And uh, so um, we do not think that there is, um, uh, that there are so many, that they all came from other occupations where they had beryllium exposure prior to, to, to entering this company. However, you're absolutely right. Um, just having um, six patients with beryllium sensitization, one of them with chronic beryllium disease, and having beryllium, finding some elevated beryllium concentrations compared to other dusts um, does not necessarily um, prove um, that uh, there is a causal relationship. However, um, one must say that beryllium sensitization is, well, at the end, not very, very common thing. And, um, well, we have this, 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 this time link of this concrete dust being blown. Um, the patient who became diseased, the same persons who are in the end, uh, who are working there, and even living closer to the region where the dust concentrations might be higher, so having also exposure afterwards. However, there might be even another company we did not consider, where we did not look. So I'm not, I would say that, that this is one, limit, one major limitation. And the other thing is that we would have liked to investigate the, the, the workers at the concrete company, maybe workers that work at, um, I don't know, the post office nearby or the supermarket nearby or whatever, just to see if they have similar um, uh, similar percentage of beryllium sensitization or so, but um, this was not possible. And um, so because everything happened on a volunteer basis, so. Yeah, go ahead, Jürgen. I just want to add one thing. So if you ask, is that might, might we have missed an occupational exposure? Maybe, don't know, but I would turn it back. So when we start investigating the dust, my maybe naive idea was there should not be any beryllium in, mm -hmm. but in yeah. fact, we found beryllium. So this is what was first astonishing me and we found it in very different uh, uh, concentrations and then we start reading start learning where is beryllium is it normally out there is it exceptional high here and we have to say no it's not exceptional high but it is higher than in other areas so i don't care what, what beryllium what is in in, in granitic rocks or wherever but I care about beryllium, which is in, in inhalable dust right. in the surrounding in the environment. And that is something what astonishes me and which deserves um, attention. Yeah. So on that, you know, just taking a hint from that, uh, Mohammed Rashad, one of the attendees, he has a, a few questions. One of them, he's stealing my thunder, but that's totally okay. So the first question is, how is a positive LPT enough to diagnose chronic beryllium disease? Because Dr. Drake did mention it's a spectrum. So Dr. Drake, and I know I shared your a recent uh, review that your group had written on this. 
right? Metal allergy, it was called. Very well done. So can you explain how you clinically use to differentiate the two entities? Yeah, so currently, since uh, the, the, the lymphocyte proliferation test was developed in the early 90s, the sensitization or a positive LPT is required for diagnosis of chronic brain disease, but not sufficient. So, uh, so what you need on top of that is, as I mentioned earlier, some form of pathology or involvement of, uh, of the organs. Most typically is uh, granuloma, non-necrotizing granuloma on lung biopsy. That's usually typically how we make the diagnosis. So the, a positive test only indicates the sensitization part. The pathology with a positive test makes a diagnosis of chronic brain disease. Having said that, you know, the definition of chronic brain disease has evolved over time. You know, before, like there's a beryllium registry before the uh, lymphocyte proficient test was developed, and the diagnosis there was purely by pathology and by radiology, by, by x-ray and pathology. And that's really how it started. But once we developed the lymphocyte proficient test, it became an integral part of the diagnosis now for uh, clinically, but also for regulatory agencies. So to me, uh, to have a diagnosis of CBD, you have both a positive blood test uh, or lymphocyte provision test on the lung. That's another option to do it on the on lung lymphocytes, but also pathology compatible with the disease. Perfect. So we now understand, and I know this is not exactly the same, but when I am sometimes doing teaching on this, I say it's a little bit like quantiferon is for like TB disease, right? It's it's a little bit the same way, not exactly, but just to get it to stick. But the next question, which I was very interested in asking you guys was, there is data to show that sarcoidosis, patients with known sarcoidosis, or at least what we think is sarcoidosis, tend to have higher amount of metal-related diseases, right? And it's hard to say if, if they are different entities or are they coexisting. So let's say a patient had coexistent sarcoidosis and say beryllium disease. How would you ever know, or do you tend to finally pick one bucket for them? And Dr. Dwayke, you can go first, and then our authors can go yeah. second. This is one of the toughest calls to make, actually. So, and uh, you know, if you somebody comes in from who's clear history of exposure to beryllium and has a positive blood test and has granulomas, it's really hard to call them sarcoidosis. You know, you can, you know, uh, the hard one comes, uh, the harder one is somebody comes who works with the beryllium plant, for example, has clear history of exposure and has granulomas, but a negative uh, LPT test. That's to me is the most difficult call because how can you, the, the two sides to it, how can you call somebody who's exposed to beryllium with sarcoidosis, but also how can you make a diagnosis of beryllium disease without an LPT? And this is something that creates a dilemma for me clinically and uh, something that we have to take on a case-by-case -case basis. The ideal situation, if you have a positive LPT, it's not sarcoidosis, done. You, know, you cannot diagnose sarcoidosis with a positive LPT. The dilemma comes when you have a negative LPT with somebody with documented exposure to beryllium. How many people with, uh, in a beryllium plant can you call sarcoidosis? That becomes tricky and I think has to be taken into account. And may I ask, it, to me, it's not astonishing. So CBD is to 90% related to special uh, HLA-DR. Clue 69. So if you don't have a Clue 69, you have a very small chance to get a CBD. So why not? You may have beryllium in your lungs, but you don't need to have berylliosis. So is, yeah. that, is that interaction, right? It's, I think that's what I was 
thinking also is how much of it is interaction with your antigen and how much your body reacts to it, right? Because at the end, that's, I think, the interaction you're looking for. Yeah. Uh, the, line, the way I like to think of genetic uh, testing, and that's a great point that has not come up until now, which I think is a good point. So there are a couple of ways, uh, multiple ways to think about it. So definitely beryllium, current beryllium disease is a great example of a genetics environment interaction. You, if you have the genetic abnormalities, uh, uh, HLA glue 69, you are more susceptible to be sensitized and to get current beryllium disease. However, it's not necessary. We certainly have patients who have CBD, uh, you know, uh, who do not have the genetic exposure. It increases your risk, but it does not, it's not required. So that's something, we, so we don't use it in the diagnostic fashion. We use it sometimes in risk assessment uh, before you apply for a job that involves beryllium. Sometimes genetic testing may be helpful to exclude those from, uh, uh, although that creates a lot of workman's issues, I'm not gonna get into them here, that's beyond the scope of this, uh, of this uh, webinar. But at least for the individual patients, if they wanna know their risk, they can do genetic testing and say, well, I'm a high risk for beryllium disease. I might as well avoid this kind of job. Uh, it is not in the U.S. legal for the employer to do this, however, because it becomes discrimination. But the individual themselves may want to know and they are entitled and they can make decisions. But if the uh, employers are not allowed legally because that becomes discrimination. So that's something I think important uh, to think about. Interesting. So, okay, so we talked about the role the HLA complex and the groove changes play, the interactions, right? So we talked about sensitization, we talked about disease, we talked about potential mimicking and where the challenges come with coexisting conditions. So here's the fun question, right? I think this is a little bit of a trick question. Are there any pathological features, I'm assuming on histology or biopsy, what have you, that can discriminate berliosis from sarcoidosis? Yeah, I can take that also as a start because we've looked at that actually here at the Cleveland Clinic. And on the transcorpal biopsy, you cannot tell. They're all non-necrotizing granulomas. Some of them are well-formed, some not well-formed, but that does not differentiate from sarcoid. However, there are some suggestions that if you look at open lung biopsy, and in some cases, that the granulomas in beryllium disease tend to be around the airways as opposed to sarcoidosis, which tends to be around the vessels. Maybe that explains the fact that some comes from environmental exposure and some is not. But this is not really by any means a defining feature, but it's an observation. Uh, it's not enough to kind of make the difference. See, the only way to tell between the two, honestly, is a lymphocyte penetration test. You know, that's really the best way to differentiate the two. But there are some minor pathological features, as I mentioned. So, um, Dr. Frie, could you, like, just to add to what Dr. Dwake just mentioned, could you use, like, for example, you know, in sarcoidosis, usually you have multiple, most patients have multiple organ involvement, like lungs and maybe skin and liver. Um, is that something that you could use potentially to, like, uh, the patient that Dr. Dwake was mentioning, a factory worker who has exposure to beryllium, but um, has a negative uh, lymphocyte proliferation test, like would a patient with chronic beryllium disease have other organ involvement as well? I must unmute. Well, um, uh, it is quite clear from the way of, of exposure that um, um, chronic beryllium patients um, have 
um, most likely involvement of the of the of the lung, that's skin and eyes. Um, maybe uh, some parts where that are involved more. Um, however, I'm at the end not quite sure whether um, other um, the manifestation maybe of uh, liver. Um, roots out um, that it couldn't be um, beryllium um, related to beryllium exposure. So at the end, I um, like the very old, very old, but the definition by scaling says that that um, we call it sarcoidosis. We do not know what causes the granulomata, and we know beryllium causes it. And we have this um, lymphocyte proliferation test, and we call it berylliosis. However, um, I think that um, the most important um, point for the patient maybe is that if he's working in, a, in, a, in, in an environmental setting with beryllium exposure and he has the granulomatose disease, then um, besides treating it with steroids, the change of the workplace is what is needed for the patient. And that is at the end, whether I call it really beryllosis, um, because I have a beryllium LPT that is positive, or maybe he was started on steroids before I could take a beryllium LPT and making it with 10 milligrams of corticosteroid, it becomes negative and I could not interpret this results. Um, However, he has granulomatose disease, he might have a risk factors that um, uh, may propagate the inflammation and may lead to a worse outcome. So he should be consulted to avoid this and uh, to maybe change the work environment. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think one kind of one of the harder issues, you know, when you find these patients, sometimes financially, it's not possible and, and things like that. Dr. Dwake, have you ever seen uh, patients with beryllium disease who have involvement outside of like skin, mucous membranes, lungs, that could potentially help you differentiate sarcoidosis and beryllium disease? Yeah, we've definitely seen it, but it's not, it's very uncommon, especially the type of patients that I see that are early on resulting from a screening test. But we've seen patients have cardiac disease and liver disease. The one feature that I don't see often, which is interesting, is adenopathy. Mm. Adenopathy is not very common in, sarcoid, in uh, beryllium disease as it is in sarcoidosis. And sometimes, again, it's not a guarantee. It's not uh, patognomonic, but uh, it's a hint that there's maybe something uh, beyond, uh, uh, I have a, a better patient who had significant adenopathy and further evaluation revealed that actually they have lymphoma, which is completely separate. So I don't, if you see adenopathy in sarcoidosis, in, uh, uh, in beryllium disease, you need to look further, you know, you don't take it for granted that it's due to beryllium disease. Uh, that's one. Okay, that's, that's great. Um, thanks for sharing that. Um, one more question I have. Dr. Zissel, could you, you mentioned, you know, prior to the start of this journal club that you have been testing a lot of people um, for beryllium sensitization. Can you talk a little bit about that, who you're testing, what your findings are, um, and, and what your goals are by doing that? Normally we do it from uh, peripheral blood, so from isolated mononuclear cells. Um, 
Yeah, what what we often see is more or less um, yeah positive cells, but very rarely re really impressive cells. So we have a few patients with very impressive LPTs with, with high increase in in uh, stimulation indices. Um, yeah, we have now maybe I told it more than thousand tests performed. We do proliferation tests, not only for beryllium, but also for, for some um, other um, um, drugs, for example, amidarone, which is also causing a lung disease, and we have um, activated T cells activated by amiodarone. We did it also for um, other drugs. So that is widely used, so you can, can adapt this test um, to, to other stuff. So. All right, so as we're coming close um, and we're gonna be shortly asking you guys to give us your top twos, right? Um, uh, take home points. But one question that is coming up from the audiences is, um, so if you have patients who have sarcoidosis, should we be thinking about routinely checking LPTs? Which is, I know, I know, but I thought this would be a fun one to yeah. ask. The LPT is very laborious. It's a lot of work. We can perform maybe three, four tests a day if for, for a single technician. And it takes at least a week or more to get a result. So this is, in my opinion, it is a very bad test, but it's the best we have. So what, what I wish would, would be a more easier test. Yeah, you mentioned before the um, um, ICRA tests, maybe. But what we see and, and others is that interferon gamma release and proliferation are not necessarily linked. It may be, but must not. So EGRA is not a possibility. So I, I would, would uh, wish to see a test which is easier to perform than LPT before we say we test every circuit patient comes into our clinic. You got it. And then based on your study, um, Dr. Freya, um, do you think if you find a patient who is appropriately diagnosed with either BPD or is sensitized in a work setting, what have you, that cluster analysis should be considered, you know, more commonly? And Dr. Dwake, that's for you to follow up with as well. Well, um, this, 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 this paper describes um, at the end a pretty lucky situation and um, where we had a patient who pointed us to perform a beryllium sensitive uh, beryllium proliferation test. And we had these, these situations that, that others came that we could make this cluster analysis. I think... Um, for 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 the clinician um, dealing maybe with sarcoidosis patients um, and noticing clusters, um, it might be interesting to 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 investigate whether there are environmental factors and beryllium is maybe um, one of the few environmental factors that we can test in patients. So. Um, I, mm, well, I think from, 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 from the scientific, from, from, from understanding of origin, from understanding the disease, um, it is, 
it is it is interesting to look for clusters, and this is one of the points um, we learned from 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 this paper and what we are going to 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 look for whether in in Germany sarcoidosis clusters at different spots. So it has been described in the work for the Switzerland, and it has been described in a region in Italy. Um, that there might be some clusters. And that is a little bit what we are looking for. And then going back to the environment and looking whether there might be beryllium in the environment or maybe something else. I don't know where this will end. Yeah, let me uh, comment on this one and the previous question as well. So um, I think the key to this, like almost any unusual disease, is to have a high index of suspicion. Uh, I can tell you, uh, we've, I've seen patients with seemingly unrelated industries like shipping, sometimes containers where they ship kind of beryllium-related things and they have uh, developed beryllium disease. But also the fact that some patients, individuals are genetically susceptible, you can find it in unlikely uh, candidates, like in beryllium plants, secretaries can have it just because even though they have not set foot in a plant, just the fact that they're genetically susceptible doesn't take much for them to get sensitized and get beryllium disease. So I think the key is high index of suspicion. And then like this team has done appropriately is once you have an index case is to like look kind of around and find what, what the source may be. Back to the question about whether we uh, should test all patients with sarcoidosis and LPT is a good question, but I think it's more instead of going jumping to doing that clinically is I think it's time to do a study on that. I think it's reasonable for a center, you know, uh, something I've been thinking of doing for a while, never get around to it. But I think for a place that has a sizable sarcoidosis clinic, it's not unreasonable to do, you know, a sampling of a certain number of patients and test and see what are the possibilities. And then if you have those positive, go back and do some tracing. Did they, is there exposure or there's not? And that's going to be helpful. The other way, just to take this a bit further, maybe more provocative about it, uh, Byron, is that uh, you could argue that sarcoidosis is still uh, a beryllium of unknown cause. You know, like beryllosis is a sarcoidosis of unknown cause. It's possible that sarcoidosis is caused by some other metal that's yet to be identified or some exposure. So I think uh, keeping an open mind about because we all, you know, the origins of sarcoidosis are still the subject of a lot of publications and debate, whether it's a microorganism, whether it's a metal. Just have to keep that in mind, you know, as, since we don't know what causes it, just keep an open mind when you have a sarcoid patient to look at uh, what it uh, what, uh, may be causing. All right. So I'm glad you said that. I was hoping to not go there, but there, if people want to Think about it that way. Uh, there is a sarcoidosis of unknown etiology. This is interesting paper. I think it was from 20, I'm looking right now, 2020 by Beiger. And they looked at patients with sarcoidosis and tested for organic and inorganic antigens, right? And this was very interesting. They found sensitization to aluminum, beryllium, silica, zirconium, mycobacterium, um, I believe there was propionibacterium as well. But anyway, point being, yes. So I'm wondering if that's what we learned, that it is, we've just been, we just didn't know enough. And this is one of those environmental sort of second hits or initiating hits. Perfect. Awesome. So we've talked about all the uh, fun stuff, all the serious stuff. So with that, uh, Dr. Freya, Dr. Giselle, 
uh, would you like to tell us your uh, uh, tell, tell our audiences what you really want uh, them to take off of here, and we'll go from there. Dr. Gizal, Dr. Freya. Yeah. Yep. Maybe my wish would be that the physician should be alerted. Occupational disease, Berlioz's might be an occupational disease, but must not. That is what we think is um, a, a message of our study. And uh, yeah, what I see is that the awareness of Berlioz's is, is increasing, at least in Germany. That is what, what, what I really believe, because the the request of the test is increasing. So. Well, I think um, maybe, maybe for the individual patients, I think it's the, the, the results here are not of utmost influence on his treatment or on his diagnosis. So I think we should stick on sarcoidosis, um, no other known or suspected beryllium exposure performing a beryllium alpatine. However, I think that for physicians and especially for researchers, as uh, Dr. Dweck said, it's um, um, interesting to look whether there are clusters of sarcoidosis patients, whether these clusters might lead to um, identification of um, immunogens that causes disease, because we still, from the sarcoidosis point of view, we still know too less about it is. On the other hand, I think also beryllium disease, because we have this patients at risk, we have patients that have an immune response and we have patients that have a disease, is an interesting, let's say, model to better understand maybe steps in the development even for sarcoidosis. So to, to maybe to look for genetic alterations that are found in the one or the other step. And furthermore, I think that um, investigating the, 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 the impact of dusts on the um, health of patients, of the health of individuals, is also an important issue that should be much more focused um, by, 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 by health authorities. Um, yeah, that's those are great points, Dr. Freya. Thank you, thank you for mentioning about the importance of health authorities, you know, being being um, cognizant about dust and exposure to dust by by populations. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much to the authors for joining us and Dr. Dwake for for being our content liaison. Um, this is a really great discussion and um, and very interesting one. And it's definitely going to it's convinced me to do a better job of taking my environmental and occupational histories. So, so I appreciate the reminder about that. <laughs> um, and uh, thanks again to, to the authors. Uh, appreciate everyone being here. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for the chance. And there's a CME available for oh, this session. So yes. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. Uh, Thank you, Viren. Yes, this is really, this is a, a good, good opportunity to earn some CME.
<laughs> That's right. So just uh, three simple questions. Uh, good learning there. And uh, we just shared the link in the chat. So just click on that and you're all set. Yeah. Uh, you, all you have to do is click on that link, answer three questions, and you'll earn yourself some CME for attending this uh, session. All right. Divya, Dr. Gray, Dr. Freya, Bon, thank you so much. Everything, Dr. Giselle, um, and continue the good work. Thank you, Dr. Thank you, Rob.